Okay, officially live. Hopefully not blurry for you. Am I all right? You're fine. You're doing fine. All right. So we've already been talking. One, I wanted to bring you on here again to dive more specifically into pregnancy and the root cause protocol in relationship to pregnancy. Okay, sure. And what I'm seeing out there, and we were talking about this a minute ago, is the high are the high rates of inductions mm-hmm. because of preeclampsia. Right. So it's standard protocol in a hospital. If a woman has preeclampsia, you're being induced basically at 37 weeks. So let's let's back up a step. Because there's four quadrants to preeclampsia. This is I understand it. Obviously. Hypertension is one factor. Um, edema is another factor. And um, I think uh, gestational diabetes falls into that category. And there's a fourth component, and I'm blanking on it. Um, let me get into my trusty sidekick here. Yeah. And you had sent me an article that I'm actually going to link below in today's show notes um, about placenta-related diseases of pregnancy, oxidative stress, preeclampsia. And I don't think it named all four. Well, and the fourth one is protein in the urine. Protein in the urine. What is that called again? Protein. Proteinuria. Yeah. P-R-O-T-E-I-N-U-R-I-A. But just so you know, there's a little static and you're a little fuzzy. Yeah, it, it kind of does that. And then in the in the replay, it's fine. Okay, that's fine. As long as you're okay with the oh, weird. I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay. I mean, you're kind of <laughs> like Monet, you know? <laughs> I'm looking for Vermeer and you're kind of Monet. But... um. So those are those are the conditions, and I think what I'm hearing you say, Leisha, is that hypertension is what's driving it. Seems to be there seems to be greater focus on hypertension, and what I'm learning uh, there's issues around um, hormonal signaling that involve the PAM enzyme as it relates to something called vasopressin. And you've also got um, uh, I need, um, my goodness. There's another, there's another hormone uh, that involves the heart, the atrium of the heart that is, it's not regulating its signal properly, which is causing the, rise in hypertension as well. And lo and behold, there's a, a, a hidden organ that no one seems to know about that can also get involved in hypertension, and that's called the spleen. So um, it's absolutely fascinating because there's a, there's a spleen-brain axis, and what I'm looking for now is, is there a spleen-placenta? Axis, and I have a feeling there is, and the 
And if there's miscommunication between these critical organs, so it's, so it's like we're used to these cell phones, right? We, we can't live without them. And they work great when they're turned on, right? When the, when they're, when the signal is there and I'm going to get my phone back, come on. You know, the signal's there. Everything's cool. But if the signal is not there, the, the hormones can't talk to each other. And I don't think people realize that there can be as many as 4,000 hormones in our body that need to talk to each other. And I have a feeling it might even be higher if you're pregnant. That's just me being provocative. I, I don't have a, I don't, I know, I know that there are 4,699 signaling peptides in the human body. That's a fact. I don't know if the change is during pregnancy. And so it's a, we have this very naive view of the world. We're kind of with C, Dick, and Jane Run, and the way the body works is more like war and peace. It's really intense. And it's not necessarily complicated, but it's all really predicated on signals and the ability to, to communicate. And just to simplify it for people, the receptors are designed like this. Hormones and signaling peptides are designed like this. When they come together, they don't work right. And what does PAM enzyme do? Opens up the hormone. And then, when they come, they have full contact. Now for for the, uh, the movie set, who might have seen Tom Cruise's latest Mission Impossible, there's a cruciform key. This is the cruciform key of our hormonal signal. And when these make full contact, it's called biologically active hormones, lights go off, just like they do in the movie. And there's a download of information, because what is a hormone? It's a signaling peptide that has a payload of information it needs to get to the receptor, download to the receptor, and then the receptor passes it on. And I think one of the most important um, hormones in pregnancy is oxytocin. And it's, women aren't producing it. Well, let's say, let me rephrase that. I think they are producing it. They're not activating it. They're not able to turn pre-oxytocin or pro-oxytocin <clears throat> into active oxytocin. And that requires the PAM enzyme, which requires copper. It's a very simple mechanism. And, and so I think we talked about this in our first session. Um, the, the focus of conventional obstetrics and midwifery is around iron status and vitamin D status. If you want a healthy baby, you better focus on magnesium and copper and retinol, vitamin A. The, the number of articles you can find about um, fetal brain development that depend on magnesium, copper, and retinol is overwhelming. There's no focus on iron and 
vitamin D. And I think the, the most amazing thing is the, um, the belief that Mother Nature is stupid and doesn't understand that um, a, a new mom who's just given birth is going to breastfeed. Well, she doesn't have enough iron and she doesn't have enough vitamin D, so we're going to supplement it because Mother Nature apparently doesn't understand the importance of it. Like it's and and that um, the um, artificial milk has forty times more iron than mother's milk. And there is no vitamin D in, in mother's milk. It doesn't exist. And so it's just, it's this neo-modern uh, assertion that, well, everyone needs iron and vitamin D. So I think the, um, the conventional recommendations are leading to um, mineral dysregulation. It's affecting the modern moms which is then affecting their ability to bring the baby to term. And what I'm intrigued by is that the 37 weeks, it's like, um, the, to me, the most important download between mom and baby is the last 12 weeks. And that's when 70 milligrams of copper leaves mom and goes to the baby's um, liver. So it leaves the mom's liver, goes to the baby's liver. And this is actually true of all mammals. But the, the amount of copper will vary from animal to animal. Horses, a whole lot more. Uh, goats and, you know, rodents, a whole lot less. Um, but 70 milligrams, that's 70% of what you and I have as adults. We only have 100 milligrams of copper in our body. But there's a download that takes place with every delivery of 70 milligrams. And that download, which takes 12 weeks, not nine weeks, 12 weeks, coupled with the retinol in the breast milk forms the backbone of the immune system for the baby's first two years of life. Because Mother Nature knows how vulnerable the infant is for those first 24 months. I just want to, I want to pause you there for a second and just ask a quick question around those 70 milligrams from mom to baby. You said mm -hmm. that takes 12 weeks. So is that happening in the third trimester? When is that happening? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the, it really initiates at the beginning of the third trimester. And so do you, I'm listening to this going, okay, so we do an induction because mom has quote unquote preeclampsia or hypertension or Right. you know, gestational diabetes, which talks about that in the article too that you sent me. But anyway, it kind of makes me feel like we're stopping by inducing a mom at 37 weeks. We're actually impeding the baby's immune system from developing. Totally. That's why I'm, I'm sort of in shock right now realizing, I, I think when we were, just before we started, we, we got into some numbers. And I was thinking that preeclampsia would be like one in a thousand, maybe one in five thousand, and you're giving me numbers like one in twenty-five, and I'm like, whoa, I'm kind of woozy just thinking about that. And that's, and that's, I guess, with a formal uh, diagnosis of preeclampsia, but I bet there's a lot of early inductions beyond that. Maybe the maybe the induction is one in ten, early induction. I don't I don't know what it is. 
seems like a lot of people i've i've talked to thousands of women over the last uh, almost 14 years almost 15 years and the number of women who planned this beautiful natural childbirth at home who were suddenly faced with a crisis, had to be taken to a birthing center or to a hospital, and it turned into this emergency nightmare. I mean, I just think about the the shock to the mom, but more so to the baby. And that's, I know I'm describing your world, but it's just, um, I think it's happening a lot more frequently than we realize. It's happening really frequently. And Again, it it is my world. It's what I see in my office all the time. Um, And so when I learned about root cause protocol and I started diving into these different aspects and chatting with you, I started to realize their prevention, right? Like there are things that can be done, I believe, in the period of preconception, conception, pregnancy, Because to me, when I read this article and talking to you, I hear preeclampsia and I'm actually, what I'm actually hearing is oxidative stress. Totally. That's exactly what it is. It's oxidative stress on steroids. Yeah, but it's (laughs) oxidative stress on steroids. Mm, Say more about on steroids. Why is it on steroids? Well, you've got, again, we've got, we're in the sea of hormones and um, what's really playing in the background of the, the, uh, premature birth and the preeclampsia is uric acid. And uric acid is, think of it as billowing black smoke coming out of the mitochondria that can't make energy. So to put it into context for people, um, we, we can all remember our uh, high school biology textbook and there was a picture of a cell, you know, big, big picture of a cell. And there was a nucleus, and there was a squiggly thing that turned into be endoplasmic reticulum, and there was all these different organelles, and, and there was one or two mitochondria. Well, that picture was drawn by Walt Disney. That's not real. And so there's the average cell has 500 mitochondria. The average liver cell is 2,000 mitochondria. Kidney cell, 4,000 mitochondria. Heart cell, 10,000 mitochondria. Mature egg in a woman's body? How many mitochondria do you think are in there? A lot. A healthy one is 600,000. Wow. 600,000 mitochondria. And in each side and inside each of those mitochondria are 50,000 atoms of copper in the center. It's called the matrix. Now yeah, we're back in the movie, the matrix, but 50,000 atoms times 600,000. And that's critical for the start of life because guess what? The start of life needs a lot of energy. And if it doesn't have energy, it's not going to. It's not going to start, and the the fetus that forms is not really technically a mammal. It's an early life form. Let's just leave it at that. Leave it <laughs> as an early life form, and over a period of nine months, 
that early life form becomes an anaerobic mammal. And when does it become an aerobic mammal? When it comes out of the birth canal. And that brief first breath, it turns on the anaerobic system. And guess what better be there to support that? Better have copper to activate the oxygen to release the energy to support the mojo of the baby. And it's like, and all of the optics are yeah, they're totally preoccupied with iron. The, the chaperone carrying the oxygen and bringing back the carbon dioxide, but who's the chef in the kitchen? And the kitchen is the mitochondria. And no one's thinking about that. And so the mom is worrying the whole pregnancy, do I have enough iron? And there's no consciousness about magnesium or copper. And you can't make energy without either one of them. And so, so crazy. Which is why I'm like, okay, there has to be a way to inform women that, you know, in an ideal world, women wouldn't start pregnancy depleted and they wouldn't start pregnancy with a lot of oxidative stress and low copper and low minerals, but they do because that's our society because we live in a state of stress and, and worry. And so we're minerally depleted all the time, but then the woman gets pregnant and then she's diagnosed with hypertension. And I'm curious, in an ideal world, what would you say to that woman that's freshly diagnosed with hypertension in her pregnancy? And the first thing I would say is that I would point out that Mildred Selig, who was a famous physician and magnesium zealot, and mom, she had a child, um, she was adamant about connecting magnesium deficiency to hypertension. Now, what when someone does present with preeclampsia, what do they give them in the birthing suite? Do you know what they get? <laughs> Drugs, I'm sure. <laughs> no, they get a bolus of either magnesium chloride or magnesium sulfate. Oh, wow. Why? Because the doctor comes in at the last minute, slides in, and says, hey, I've got the solution for you. Let's let's try to stop this hypertension thing so we can have the baby so you don't stroke out. And like, my point is, doctor, where were you nine months ago, eight months ago, seven months ago, six months ago? And did you at any point monitor magnesium status in the red blood cell? No, they don't, because they're not trained to. Let's not pick on them. Their training is, is really pathetic in that sense. And so... The, the mom doesn't know that, that there's a dwindling magnesium status. And what, what did Mildred Selig say in an article? Pregnancy is a constant state of magnesium deficiency from stem to stern. From the minute you get... Why? Because you pointed it out. It's a constant state of oxidative stress. And guess who's taking it on the chin during oxidative stress? Magnesium gets lost. The kinase enzymes that are trying to make energy, trying to release phosphate, and when they do that, magnesium gets dropped into the urine. It's just the way the body works. And there's a lot of stress involved in creating new life. It's beautiful, but it's, but it's very stressful for the mom. 
and especially in a mom that doesn't know what's really going on. You know, they're, I mean, it's just the, the optics of it are just out of control. Worry about your iron and let's ignore the magnesium. Let's ignore the copper. Let's, let's ignore the fact that you need retinol in your breast to make sure you can make breast milk. It's like, come on. So that's where I have frustration is that the system, I think we, I think what's needed is more consumer education and let them educate the practitioners. Well, because even like being on a typical, quote unquote, typical prenatal that you buy at the grocery store is actually also leading to oxidative stress, according to root cause protocol, right? Because it's full of it's full of um, ascorbic acid and fake, I'm going to say fake vitamin C, synthetic vitamin C. Yeah, right. Full of vitamin D. It's full of iron. Yep. And so it's actually just countering what the woman's trying to do and leading to more oxidative stress. Yeah. And they're not aware of it. And and I think what's important for people to know, we might have shared this in in our first conversation, but, but it bears repeating. <clears throat> the, the placenta, that is the forgotten organ. Uh, the spleen is called the hidden organ or the mysterious organ, but the placenta is the forgotten organ. These are pr- probably two of the most important organs in the human body. And the, there are three different proteins that express what's called ferrooxidase enzyme expression. Now, what does that mean? It means that it turns ferrous iron, which has a plus two valence, into ferric iron, which has a plus three valence, so that it can be either stored or transported. It's very, very important that it be in a, in a plus three state. And the placenta is the only organ in the body that expresses all three, ceruloplasmin, hephaestin, and zyclopen. Only organ that expresses all three multi-copper oxidases that's essential for copper iron regulation in the body. And I don't know, when I, when I read something like that, only organ, I like, let's put that at the top of the headlines that's really important to know that. And you could have your listeners, your followers, your clients go to their birthing practitioner and ask them about, tell, tell me what you know about zyclopen. And it's going to be a long pause. And, and then they can follow that up with, well, what do you know about Harry McArdle, M-C-A-R-D-L-E, McArdle, Scottish scientist, he published in, gosh, 2008, 2010, 2012. What do you know about some of his publications? That'd be a good place for people to start and and start to challenge this mind-numbing um, narrative that you need more iron. Well, maybe you do need, you need better iron regulation. I'll buy that. You don't need more iron. You need better iron regulation. And you better have a placenta that's expressing all three of those copper, multi-copper oxidases. And I think that's what's missing is a full understanding of how the body really works. Yeah, 
I just saw like a, in my mind's eye, a vicious cycle actually, mm-hmm. because yeah. they get di- women will get diagnosed with hypertension. Um, they're doing blood panels, which is something that you said you wanted to talk about today. It's more about the ferritin and the blood work, the blood right. aspects of it. Sure. Their iron gets is low, so they get put on iron, which increases the oxidative stress, which is going to increase the hypertension. Yeah. No, it, it is a vicious cycle. And I think um, we, live in a, we live in a culture now where we worry about our health. We're just conditioned to worry about our health. And you get pregnant, and I think that worry goes on overdrive. And... Um, people, I think women worry about their iron status. I, I think they, they obsess about it. And I think they obsess about their vitamin D status because they've been conditioned and trained to worry about that. And then I, I, I came across a new phrase I'd never, I'd never seen before. Um, chronic social defeat stress. CSDS, chronic social defeat stress. I'm, Lisha, I've, I've read probably a thousand articles on stress. I've never seen that phrase before. It turns out it's a mouse model for creating depression. Chronic social defeat stress. You know what I think that's describing? COVID. What does it mean when you say social defeat, like people that aren't being social? People that feel overwhelmed by society. People that feel, um, people who have lousy jobs, people who have lousy relationships, people who feel out of place in society. And it's, and there are some people who've got multiple dimensions of that. Well, guess what Oregon takes it on the chin when you have chronic social defeat stress. I wouldn't guess spleen, but after we've talked about it, I'm going to guess spleen. <laughs> right. See, I would see most people would have said it was the adrenal glands. Mm. And and here's the thing. Again, the system wants us looking here, not there. Right? Well go to the HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal. That's guy. That's what you need to focus on. Focus on it. Don't listen to that guy talking about the spleen. Forget. What does he know? Right? He's not a doctor. Just forget him. Oh my gosh, the impact on the spleen, and and you. The very first thing you brought up when we were chatting before we started recording was the immune system. You went right to the immune system, and it's like, and the immune system is signaling with this box up here. And it affects the signaling, and it leads to depression. And what's depression? It's not a it's not a mental state. It's an energy state, low energy, depressed energy. Ooh, so you just kind of power down, and everything slows down. It's like oh my God. I'm like, and so they're talking about trying to create resilience using drugs, and I'm like. You can do that with uh, copper. It's really good. <laughs> the RCP really increases your resilience. But people don't know that. And so it's just, oh, my God. But I've, I'd never seen that phrase before. 
And then I stumble on it. The, the article, the article that I was reading where I found that was describing the impact of that experience, that social experience on the spleen. And I'm like, wow. So, and, and let's just underscore for people to understand why this, why we're getting kind of goofy about this spleen. Yeah, let's talk about spleen. I think it's real important. Again, it's the gateway to all autoimmune conditions, folks. It's the gateway to metabolic syndrome. Now we find out it's the gateway to all um, behavioral health issues. That's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, hefty list of things that it, it's involved with. Well, it's the intersection of two major systems. You have the iron recycling system. The formal name for it is called the reticuloendothelial system. Do you know it took me two years to figure out what that meant? And that means recycling. Recycling iron. Recycling iron. And that happens in the spleen. Happens in the spleen. I thought it was liver. No, no. no. Again, look here, not there. So so we've got this major system. Let's put it into perspective. Every second of every day, we have to break down two and a half million red blood cells. Okay? Every second. So we've been talking for about 20 minutes now, maybe more times 60, times two and a half million. And while the spleen's breaking them down, the bone marrow in our long bones, hips, and and, uh, pelvis are making two and a half million red blood cells a second. And that's to... The red blood cell lives for 120 days. And every day, we got to replace 1%. And it's broken up into 24 hours, 60 minutes, times 60 seconds. And that... And it's 2 trillion red blood cells that are replaced every 24 hours. (laughs) And that's just one job for the spleen. Then we have this other job. So I'm picturing uh, 95 outside of Atlanta intersecting with Route 5 outside of Los Angeles. (laughs) Got these two highways. And, And what's the spleen doing next? Oh, yeah. We've got what are called encapsulated bacteria. Things like uh, pneumonia, tuberculosis, um, salmonella, little little things. Malaria, you've heard of it, right? We've got, we got to get rid of these parasites. Oh, did you know that the parasite that causes Lyme is, is designed to be broken down in the spleen? Mm. So again, we've got two and a half million red blood cells a second that need to be taken offline. That's, that's 1%, folks. 2.5 million means there's 250 million red blood cells coursing through your spleen every second, and we're taking 1% out. And so picture Lucy and Ethel at the chocolate factory, and the managers just said, speed it up, boys. And then we got to deal with the immune system. And then I find out this morning. So we've got, the, we've got the placenta is the only setting where there's three expressions of multi-copper oxidases. The spleen is the only organ that can recreate itself. Wow. I think it's wow. <laughs> I, and, and what do doctors do as fast as they can? They take them out. And so 
that's an extraordinary, it's like one in five people have multiple spleens in their body. 20, 20% of people have multiple spleens. Really? More yeah. than one spleen in it. Yeah. They just don't know it because they've never they had an ultrasound. Or... Exactly. Why would huh. they know that? And so, wow, the, the body must sense that it needs more support, right? <laughs> and so the, the immune system, do you, th- do you think possibly the immune system might be challenged in pregnancy? Well, Maybe. <laughs> 100%. And yeah. I'm, I'm going back to our conversation of breastfeeding. Right. And that's a huge place where babies are receive their mm-hmm. immune system blueprint and imprints and absolutely. But and if, if the, and if the spleen's not happy, the, the the milk's not going to be happy, and then the baby's not going to be happy. Right, because so many. I mean, a lot of moms. There's many reasons why milk doesn't come in, but one mm-hmm. of the reasons, definitely, I'm feeling can be uh, depletion and low retinol. Absolutely. I I think, and I mentioned uh, Jennifer Toe to you uh, offline, but I think for people just to know that she's a really savvy uh, lactation consultant and very, very well versed in the RCP. Um, really smart. I mean, she's just like, you know, it's you, you guys would really hit it off when, when you do talk to each other. But the thing is, what she's come to realize is the biggest block to lactation excess iron in the mom's body. I just got chills. I'm just going to name. It's like this wall that blocks the the lactation process. Well, and so then baby can't get, like we were saying, the download of, of the immune system. And then I'm imagining like lifelong issues with the spleen because of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And And it turns out this is getting this maybe for the gearheads. I'll just, Run through it, and then we'll come back to the the, the gentler C. Dick and Jane run. But um, there's a, a a peptide that the spleen keeps track of, and it's called FGF two B as in Baker, FGF two B, and it's really keeping track of the balance between calcium and phosphorus in the body. Hmm. And this is inside the spleen. Like it doesn't have enough to do. Yeah, keep track of that uh, calcium and phosphorus. Now, what people don't know is that uh, if you get into the world of hair tissue mineral analysis, everything is about knowing whether the person is a fast or a slow oxidizer. And for the longest time, I thought that meant fast or slow to rust. No, it's referring to complex four, which is called cytochrome C oxidase. Do you, do you make energy fast or do you make energy slow? And a fast oxidizer has a completely different profile, mineral profile, than a slow oxidizer. And the, the, the way you determine whether someone is fast or slow is what's the ratio of calcium to phosphorus that shows up in the hair. And it's best done with a scalp sample, not, you know, body hair or pubic or whatever, because uh, there's there's um, more phosphorus as you go south of the border. Just, I don't know why, but, but there is. So it throws off that ratio. 
But the, the person who figured this out, his name was Melvin Page. He was a dentist at the turn of the century. And he's one of those three-century scientists. He was born in one century, practiced in the second century, and is recognized for his genius in the third century. And he's up there with Royal Lee and um, Weston A. Price, people like that. And so, interesting that they're all dentists. But um, the thing is, what Dr. Page discovered is that um, the ratio of 2.4 parts calcium to one part phosphorus is exactly what you want in an animal. 2.4 to 1. Now, that was back in the... um, probably like the 60s when he came up with that. And then when um, Ekin Watts developed the HTMA process back in the 70s, they refined it and brought it up to 2.63 to 1. So 2.63 parts calcium to one part phosphorus. So why am I belaboring this point? Well, I found an article from 1971 based on Dr. Page's research. And they were studying cattle and lactation. Because guess what dairy cattle are? They're lactating animals, right? They're producing milk. (laughs) It's pretty darn important. And um, what they discovered is if if the animals... Calcium to phosphorus ratio was too high. If it was too far above 2.4 in this article, the liver can't absorb copper. And the liver is a copper organ, folks. And if the liver can't absorb copper, then the liver can't download copper to the fetus. And the prenatals that Leisha is talking about are going to make sure you have a high calcium to phosphorus ratio. I guarantee it. And so this gap in our understanding about the role of copper in pregnancy is really important because if there's a if there's a nutrient break on the ratio of calcium to phosphorus by virtue of the design of the prenatal that's blocking the uptake of copper in the liver, well, guess what's going to happen downstream? You're going to get preeclampsia because the uric acid level is going to rise because uric acid is being produced because the mitochondria of the maternal baby-making machine can't make enough energy. It's going to start to give off exhaust, big-time exhaust, and that exhaust is what's going to feed the oxidative stress that Leisha is talking about that will lead to the proteinuria, the the, uh, gestational diabetes, the uh, hypertension, and the edema. And it's like what copper represents is this really tiny Achilles heel. And if you don't know about it, then you just kind of, uh, can't be that important, Right? But it's, it's like a cotter pin on a wagon. And if the cotter pin breaks, you're screwed. Well, that's really that's what's happening. And so 
the the preeclampsia that we're talking about, the the um, induced induced um, process is being triggered because I'm I'm afraid that the the mineral um, status of the mom is really compromised now. I mean, I know I know that it is, but I think it's what you're what you're making me aware of is that it's probably more severe than I thought it was. And now we've got to deal with um, just the whole process of of the induced um, delivery. Yeah, and I, we haven't spoken about this. I speak about this myself just separately, but the reason why I'm so passionate about not doing it, well, there's a lot of reasons why I'm passionate about not in, not having inductions, but a big one is that it usually leads to a cascade of interventions that are unnecessary that often lead to birth trauma and birth trauma is now an epidemic here in the United States. Right. Yeah, it is. And again, it's just, um, I I think what I'm, I'm fascinated by is where's the maternal wisdom that's not being passed down from grandmother to mother, to child, to mother, to the new mom. And then, and then it's just and I'm not, I'm not trying to blame anybody. I'm just like, where is that wisdom? Well, let's talk about what was happening, I believe, in the 1950s. So this would have been my grandmother's era. Um, oh, and I just totally blanked what it's called, but they would give them nitrous oxide. They would, they would really? pass out during labor, nitrous oxide. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I've heard about that. Um, oh. I totally just blanked what it was called when I think of it. I'll put it in the show notes, but... Um, so the majority of that generation wasn't even awake for their birth. So there is no maternal instincts or, or generational wisdom to be passed down. I mean, it basically was like, my grandmother was asleep. My mother had all four C-sections. Wow. Because the first was breach and needed to be a C-section and at that time, once you had a C-section, there were no VBAC. So all four of us were then a C-scheduled C-section. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is what's being passed down. And it's the concept, well, that hospitals save you and they're here to save your life. And, you know, that's truth sometimes. There's times when I've been to the emergency room and thank heavens I've gotten stitches and, and what I've used it for. But that's the paradigm shift that I'm seeing starting to happen with this movement from the hospital knows best and saves you and completely overrides the mother's instincts and inner knowing. No, it's, it's, it, again, it's this uh, wholesale um, turnover of the responsibility from the individual to someone else, some authority figure. Mm-hmm. And I think the, to me, the, the big fight on the planet is not good versus evil. It's sovereignty versus independence versus dependence, and that's that's the real conflict that we're seeing. And there's a certain percentage of people who who are adamantly wanting to be in control and in charge and sovereign, if you will. And there's another percentage who just say, "I'll let the, I'll let somebody else take care of it." Well, and the hard piece is like, I get women in my office that say, well, I want to deliver at home. I want to deliver at a birth center, but I can't because I have preeclampsia. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, so that, so that becomes a, uh, a criterion for rejecting people for home birth? 
It can, oh, so, yeah. Wow. See, I think what, to me, what's dangerous is um, the term preeclampsia means four things. And I'll bet most people only have one, possibly two. But they've, they're being, you know, tattooed with preeclampsia. And I wonder how, whether the, whether the dynamic could be resolved with just simple nutrient intervention. Easily. I mean, I, I feel that it could be, and it is this, this education. And I have a teacher in the pre and perinatal world that says, I can't take on the hospital system. I, it's just yeah. me. I can't yeah. take it on. And she goes, but I can have a little hut next to the hospital where yeah. anyone is welcome and anyone can come to my hut. And I'm like, okay, I'm yeah. building a hut. Like I can't no. take on this whole preeclampsia system. No, no, you can't. I think the, the, the challenge of course is getting to people before they get pregnant mm-hmm. or early in their pregnancy. Or I guess the, the fallback would be uh, the mom who's had one child hopefully learns about this and then they know for subsequent births. I mean, there's there's a lot of, of couples out there that are having what are called RCP babies, and they're, the, the birthing process is completely different. It's a very different experience because because Mother Nature is taking over. There isn't the, all this artificial dogma about this and that. And it's just let nature run its course, and it's been going on for a few million years. Uh, or certainly thousands of generations. And so we, we just have to surrender to that wisdom that's out there. Well, I think the last thing I'll ask you, there's two different ways we could do this, because I, I also didn't ask you what time you needed to be done today. <laughs> when, no, do, when do you need to pop off? <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I, and okay. I just want to make sure we do talk about the, the ferritin thingy. That's what and, I was going to bring up. Okay. Is that right. You had sent me a text message um, and I actually just wrote it down what you said that ferritin has no iron in it. It's not a marker of iron status. So let's let's talk about what that means. <laughs> People are like, what? <laughs> well, the record. I went and got my blood work and I looked at it and compared my numbers to the website, the root cause protocol website. You you have your recommended numbers in a blog post. Uh-huh. And I still had a hard time understanding my iron numbers and what was happening there. Yeah, so it's it's very, it is very, yeah, it's very confusing um, because we, we think we want simple, you know, where's the simple button? Come on. I want easy. Give me easy. And um, people want um, arithmetic and we're kind of getting into calculus here. Unfortunately, well, it's not high, low. It, it actually, it's really, it's, it's kind of like, uh, miles per gallon. It's not that's not too complicated. How many miles did I drive? How many gallons did I use? And how much efficiency did I have? You know, what kind of what's my en- how's my engine doing? Um, so there there's three different containers for iron. People need to know that, and they're not the same size. And so there's a real big container called a bucket of iron that is hemoglobin, and that's 70% of your iron. That's an enormous amount of iron. And again, think about it coursing through the spleen, and, they're try- and the spleen is trying to keep track of it. 
Um, but that's 70% of your iron. And then if you include the myoglobin, which is very similar, it's also a waiter carrying oxygen and carbon dioxide. Um, if you include that, that's another 10%. So 80% of your iron is a storage protein or a transport protein carrying oxygen. And so from the time of the Civil War to 1872, every practitioner knew that someone's iron status was best measured by studying the bucket of hemoglobin. You know, what what's going on there? And when someone's not pregnant, a woman should be between 12.5 and 13.5. When it drops below that, it's a sign of copper deficiency. It's not a sign of iron deficiency. So iron dysregulation is not iron deficiency. And copper is the general, and iron is the foot soldier, the grunt. And there's fewer generals than foot soldiers. By law, here in the States, there's 242 generals, and there's 440,000 foot soldiers. That's the law. And that's the way our body works, too. Fewer generals, more foot soldiers. And... That's not the way it's taught in medical school, but that's the way Mother Nature... Mother Nature U knows that it's it's actually a very important part of our iron recycling. So we've got the bucket. Next container is a teacup, little tiny thing. Um, I'm sure your grandmothers used to drink tea. Maybe you guys do as well. But most people have venti teas. They're not thinking about how small a teacup, teacup was back in uh, merry old England. But it's very small, and that represents 10% of the iron found inside the cell in what's called ferritin. Ferritin is a storage protein, and there's actually three forms of ferritin. This is where the train's going to run off the track, because people don't know there's different forms. So there's heavy chain. And heavy chain works like an ATM. Put iron in, take it out. Put it in, take it out. Put it in, take it out. And that form of ferritin is found in the heart and the kidney. And it runs on an enzyme called ferrooxidase. Again, that enzyme that's running your placenta is running the heavy chain ferritin. Why is it called heavy? Because copper is a heavy metal. And copper is essential to run that form of ferritin. Absolutely essential. That that heavy chain is also found inside your nucleus and inside your mitochondria. Think it might be important? And and when was the last time your doctor told you about the heavy chain ferritin? Never. So heavy chain, second form is called light chain. And light chain does not have copper. Light chain stores iron. It's like a square peg in a round hole. It's using hydrogen peroxide to uh, change the valence of iron so it can be stored, but it gives off static. That form of ferritin is found in your liver and your spleen. What a coincidence. And what happens is in a low copper body, light chain ferritin will rise and it will take on more iron because there's not enough generals in your diet. And your iron is going to get dysregulated. But then there's a third form. 
But wait, there's more. And so the third form is called serum ferritin. If you want to be really technical about it, it's called G-ferritin for glycosylated ferritin. Glycosylation is a process of, of putting sugar molecules on the ferritin. But what's important to know is that that serum ferritin, that G-ferritin, as it's sometimes referred to, um, it's very low in iron, almost no iron to speak of. And it has this sugar molecule attached to it. And part of the um, part of the protein's been broken down. This may or may not work for the, the viewers, but I've got the L-ferritin and the S-ferritin, and you can see that the S-ferritin is missing a little ribbon on the left-hand side. I just found that just before our call, Leisha. Um, but the but the thing is, the ferritin, there are different forms of ferritin, but the ferritin is supposed to be inside the cell. It is not supposed to be in the blood. And what I also learned this morning is that it's actually, the ferritin that does show up in the blood is secreted by three different tissues, liver, spleen, and kidney, depending upon where the oxidative stress is. Ding, ding, ding. And then um, third uh, container for iron is called a thimble. And most people have never used a thimble. I know I haven't. I know my mom and my grandmother did. But most people have played with a thimble when they played Monopoly. It's one of the, it's one of the little lead pieces that are I don't know if they're still made of lead. I bet they're not. But it's hey, one of Morley, the hang on a second. Is, is well, it's 1% Wait. of your... Wait, sorry. You, do you know what I'm talking about? What's Can that? you hear? You cut out. You just froze up. <laughs> oh. Okay. You're yeah, you're back. back. I heard you say, I used a thim- I've never used a thimble. My grandma has, and then you cut out. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So... Um, my mom and my grandmother both used a thimble, but it's it's in a in a board game called Monopoly. <laughs> um, but it's a very small uh, container, and it represents one percent of the iron in the body. But it's an important one percent because that's the iron that's going from the spleen back to the bone marrow to be made into new red blood cells two and a half million times a second. It's really really important. And what is happening now in the modern era is there's a lot of confusion about iron status in women, pregnant women, and there's an increasing use of a ferritin blood test for pregnant women. And it turns out that it's irrelevant in pregnancy. Now, this is not my idea. This is, I've read this by Myra Fields, who was a world-renowned copper expert before her death in uh, 2013, I believe is when she passed. Um, another famous uh, UK-based obstetrician, his name is Philip Steer, uh, and he's legendary for his research. And 
he says that in his signature article from 1995 that ferritin blood testing is irrelevant in pregnancy. And I really was really kind of challenged by that statement. I was like, what is he talking about? And so as I've gotten to learn more about the spleen and the immune function that you so quickly jumped on, I've come to realize is that that early formation of the fetus is going to signal an immune reaction. Hey, there's something, there's something new here. And what the, what the body does is it tells the spleen, hey, chill, we're, we're okay. And it lowers the function of the spleen during pregnancy. What well, turns out that the level of spleen, excuse me, the level of ferritin is a function of the expression of the spleen. And high ferritin is a spleen on overdrive. It's called splenomegalia. And low ferritin is a function of hyposplenism, low spleen. And that's what pregnancy is, low spleen function. And so there's a rush to judgment because practitioners don't understand spleen function, don't understand the immune function in response to the fetus forming. And what the, what the ferritin molecule represents it's an indication of uh, the level of inflammation in the body and what's the vitality of the spleen. And so uh, it's, it's been um, twisted into, oh, it's a surrogate for how much iron is in your cells. And, and when you start to read um, the research of Dr. Jacobs, Dr. Warwood, Dr. Rosio, Dr. Kell, and, and luminaries like that, it doesn't pass muster. And so people need to really challenge this narrative because that's all it is. So we've got narrative versus Mother Nature. I'm a, I'm a naturalist all the way. I don't buy the narrative. I don't know when the last time the narrative was right. And um, this idea that low ferritin means low iron means... Um, a baby at risk means, oh, you're going to bleed out. That's all narrative. And we need to start pushing back on that tide of insanity and disinformation. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that people knew that. And I'm happy to talk further with you. Or if people want to reach out to me directly, that's fine. But um, this is, a, I think it's a very serious problem. And it's creating a lot of... Um, I've actually renamed what the uh, I've renamed ferritin. I call it erritin because, <laughs> because more mistakes have been made uh, based on its testing, and it's led to a lot of iron supplements and iron infusions, and it's um, a very serious problem in not just obstetrics. It's it's playing out in uh, pediatrics playing out in gerontology, uh, it's, it's really getting quite serious about the speed with which practitioners will hook someone up to uh, a bag of iron, and it's just not warranted. So, of course, this spurred a bunch of questions. Good. <laughs> let's let's start so. with the, probably the most simple one where you said low ferritin. Someone tests with low ferritin, which they think then is low iron. 
They throw them on iron supplements and iron infusions. But according to root cause protocol and the research that you've done, that actually causes more of an issue and would cause a bleed out. It wouldn't prevent the bleed out. Exactly. That's exactly. So wonderful clarification. So the bleed out is the bo- there's only one way to get rid of excess iron. Bleed. Through, through blood loss. Yeah. And there's no enzyme function, there's no hormonal function, there's no regulatory function to lower iron status in the body other than gravity coming out an open vein. And it's just, and, and there's, people need to know there's, there's two, there's only two reasons why women outlive men. Only two reasons. One, women are smarter. <laughs> your Tesla coil in your brain is better than my Tesla coil. <laughs> no, serious. You have you have a stronger electromagnetic pulse in your brain than I do. That's a fact. And you have a monthly blood loss for 40 years. And so you've been dumping iron for 40 years, and that allows you longevity. Again, Mother Nature kind of thought it through. Guys, um, our, our ancestors used to bleed in the field from farming accidents, and their ancestors used to bleed in the field from battles. Well, we guys don't, we're not in battles like that anymore. We we throw, you know, paper clips and memos at each other now, but we're not throwing swords and knives at each other. And so it's just, it's a very different world. And so guys need to be donating blood quarterly, but women have a built-in system for 40 years and you should celebrate getting to your late 50s and still donating blood every month. Don't be excited. Oh, I'm 42 and it stopped. And oh, hallelujah. And it's like, guess what's going to happen? Your spleen's going to fill up with iron. Then your brain's going to fill up with iron. And you're going to get neurodegeneration. And that's well, I, in the research. Well, they, I mean, they do say in Eastern medicines that you know, women don't go through menopause until 50s, mid-50s. Like, that that's a sign of health, actually, is the later the menopause, the better. Absolutely. And there is no, there is no word in Japanese for hot flash. Doesn't exist. Because, because they have a different diet than we do, and they're very well mineralized, and they move from um, menses to menopause with no issue. You know, that was actually another reason I'm getting curious about root cause protocol. I just turned 43 and I don't have any signs of premenopause or menopause, but in the back of my mind, I'm going, I want it to be easy. I want it to feel good. I don't want it to be the story that we're told and that we see is like how miserable it is and the hot flashes. And, and I'm like, no, there has to be a different way to do this. There has to be a better way to do this. And and what I didn't, I did, um, again, this morning was a very productive morning. Um, I, I asked simple questions. One of my, one of my, my colleagues, who's a, a really sharp guy, a very talented um, PhD chemist, he said, Morley, you have mastered the art of the simple question. And so the simple question that I asked this morning was, gee, I wonder if the spleen has anything to do with the menstrual cycle. <laughs> oh my gosh absolutely does and so 
if the spleen's not happy, the menstrual cycle's not happy. Mm-hmm. And it's it's in the literature. I was like, oh my gosh, I had never thought to ask it. Turns out that the spleen is connected to the planet Saturn. And who's the god of Saturn? Kronos, timekeeper, Father Time, is who runs um, Saturn. And the spleen is running the clocks. <laughs> Same. It's mm. absolutely amazing. And so for, for folks whose cycle is not long enough, or if the menstrual flow is too light or too heavy, there's only one place to turn. It's, we're back to the spleen. And, you, and again, you would think it would be the uterus, right? Or maybe the ovaries, ovaries right? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's the 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11 organ. Mm. <laughs> I, just, I just find it fascinating that, you know, who knew, right? Well, one, I don't think you were recording when you talked about the 137. One, oh, three, oh, oh, okay, so. Yeah, let's share that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, this one article I was reading, it was a blog. It wasn't a scientific article, but it was saying it, the spleen is the odd number organ. And I thought, what are they talking about? And it turns out it's 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11. So the spleen is one inch thick, three inches wide five inches long, weighs seven ounces, and it hides behind spleens, excuse me, hides behind ribs nine through 11, which I think is just like, oh my God, it's just, it's so clever. And uh, nobody thinks about the spleen. Mm-hmm. There's just phenomenal information about it. And then you get into, as you were jumping on it initially, the immune function, it's, 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 it runs both the innate and the adaptive immune system, folks. It's not, it's it's like, oh, so this is really the brains of the outfit. So we're talking about a major center for um, intelligence, absolute intelligence. I think you'll get a kick out of the story, and then I, I want to go back to the ferritin because I have another question. But sure, um, <clears throat> some people that have known me for a little bit, I do share about how I got really, really sick in 2014 from a virus, <clears throat> and. I had to create a relationship with my spleen because Mm. that is where, excuse me, obviously there's still stuff moving around it. I'm just going to clear my throat. So I, um, at the time I worked as an occupational therapist at the hospital and I was kind of teetering in this place of knowing that I loved being an OT, but I was studying cranial sacral therapy Mm -hmm. and I was in this like, maybe like um, an awakening or a big transition between what is yeah. the medical world and what is the spiritual world and, and what is, what is my genius here? And, and that's when I got sick and I had already started learning cranial sacral. And I remember one day laying on my couch, just sick as could be. And I put my hands on my body and I just said, where where do my hands need to be? And it was like, oh, my hands need to be on my spleen. And I just put my hands on my spleen and started having a conversation with it and being like, what, (laughs) what is happening? What is going on with my body? And it was really the first time that I started to have conversations with my body. Wow. That's pretty cool. And started to realize my body has this innate intelligence. It actually can talk to me and speak to me. 
It -hmm. knows what it needs to heal if I'm just willing to listen. And one of the things I had to do was create a better relationship with my spleen. And because I was so angry, I was so angry. I was sick and and wasn't happy. And it was like, nope, this is time to get to know your body and to heal your body. And it it started with you. You were going through that chronic social defeat Mm -hmm. and you were understandably totally stressed out about it because you're smart cookie. Your body wasn't paying attention to your intelligence. The body was dealing with different information. And you were getting very frustrated because your body didn't respond to your thoughts. Yeah. And, no, it's, it's a very understandable. And I think, I think a lot of people get into that conflict. Like, I'm a good person. I'm thinking good thoughts. My body is not paying attention to me. And then they get mad. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. then they'll think, well, then I must be doing something wrong. And then they'll start to blame themselves for the problems. Or... Worse yet, they'll go to the internet or their doctor and say, I've got a problem. And they'll, they'll tell them to do this when, in fact, the solution's over here. And they don't know that. And so they're doing this faithfully, faithfully, faithfully. Body doesn't respond. And then they think, well, I'm doing something wrong. And then the ultimate, the ultimate conflict is I'm a bad person and I'm being punished by God. And I, I deserve this because I'm a bad person. No, the doctors were like, we don't know what's wrong with you. Let's just put you on antibiotics. And I said, no, that doesn't yeah. feel right. Like, I actually need my good gut biome right now because I'm really sick. I do know I need that. So I'm actually going to say no to the antibiotics. And everyone thought I was so crazy, but I was like, it's not going to do anything. They don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> and I and I think they're... Um, Antibiotics probably I haven't I haven't researched it yet yet, but I have a feeling the antibiotics are affecting uh, spleen. Oh yeah, big time. And okay. what people need to know is that um, glyphosate and a high fructose diet. Don't worry about your grapes, but, but the high fructose diet uh, and the antibiotics are really hard on the spleen. And Oh, and those agents affect copper status. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the spleen is working with iron all day long, so there's got to be copper down there. And there's a famous copper researcher named Joseph Prohaska, and back in the 70s, he did several studies on what happens to the spleen in the state of copper deficiency. And I'm going to start to study that research. Amazing. Because it immediately affects the immune system. That, yeah. That's a fact. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask, bring us back to the baritone and ask a few more yeah. questions and we can wrap sure. up. Yeah. Um, so when when they do, they, meaning a physician, does a typical blood draw, are they blood, are they doing both the hemoglobin and the ferritin or are they just doing the ferritin? Uh, increasingly, they're just doing ferritin. Okay. And I think what people need to do is say, I want a full iron panel. I want to know my hemoglobin. I want to know my ferritin. I want to know my serum iron. I want to know my transferrin. I want to know my percent saturation. They need to get all the different permutations of the iron status. Which is really what your, I think you call it the full Monty. That's what the full Monty is. It's that blood draw that does do all that iron. Right. And it it looks at copper and zinc, magnesium, 
vitamin A and D and uric acid. Mm. And, and it's not it's not a definitive test, folks, but it's far more comprehensive and inclusive because it's looking at the intersection of these minerals and nutrients. Because that's really where the magic is, is understanding are they in relationship, are they in proper relationship with each other? So I've had a client <clears throat> that asked her doctor to give her the full, she asked her doctor, she was pregnant, asked for the full Monty and the doctor said, oh, we don't need to do that. That's, we, that's bluff. That's crazy. Well, people can, they can order for themselves. I've, I've heard that many, many times. It okay. costs more money that way. It's out of pocket. But if you really want to take control of your health, you're going to have to make that kind of a, an investment. Okay. Yeah, I was curious if there was something you could say to the doctor that would help them understand why all this is important. But I guess they're not going to take the time to listen. Well, they're busy people. They're very proud of their training. They're very confident in their training. And I think with all due respect, practitioners have learned to confuse their training with the truth and that they're not the same. And they don't know that. And many of them are coming around. Many of them are increasingly open-minded, which is beautiful to experience, but not not all of them are there. And so the individual has to decide whether to uh, push harder with the practitioner or go a different route to possibly another practitioner or going out on their own to get the uh, blood work. And there's a lot of people who do all three. Yeah. And then lastly, you said average numbers. I think you said it's hemoglobin should be 12.5 to 13.5 when you're not pregnant. Oh, yeah. I didn't didn't finish the thought, did I? Um, What happens, (laughs) um, and this is the work of Philip Steer from 1995. He studied 150,000 live births. I would have been impressed if he'd studied 1,500. And what he was looking at is what is the hemoglobin of the mom with the babies who are the healthiest babies born? And it's my birth weight, APGAR score, things like that. And so what he found studying 150,000 live births is that there's a natural drop-off of hemoglobin driven by Mother Nature. It's called hemodilution. Actually, what what Mother Nature is trying to do is get hemoglobin out of the mother's body into the womb so that the mother can produce milk. Ding, ding, ding. And it's going to cause a lowering of hemoglobin in the mother's body down to 8.5 to 9.5. And what people need to understand is that in the world of convention, whether it's obstetrics or midwifery, um, anything below 12 makes them nervous. Anything below 10 causes the rails to come off or the wheels to come off the the rails. They get very unsettled. And most places will not allow home births or birthing center births if your uh, hemoglobin is below 10. When in fact, Mother Nature wants less than 10. And the research is very clear. Uh, Unfortunately, it isn't 20 obstetricians it's just a highly respected obstetrician in England. And it's old. Gosh, it's 28 years old. What does he know? He's an old man now. 
And it's like, that's the attitude is we've lost sight of the wisdom of these practitioners who were really honoring what is what does Mother Nature want? What is the body looking for? And that's being lost to modern um, experiments. So it goes back to what I said before and what you were sharing was that then they think you have low ferritin, they throw you on iron, and then you do end up actually bleeding out because it's just causing more of the issue. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's very hard for them to believe that. And I, I can't – I have not found an article – and I'm a pretty good – uh, mm-hmm. digger. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've not found an article that in any way corroborates that higher hemoglobin is going to prevent bleeding out. I can't find it. it. Just So if someone has it, bring it my way. I'd love to read the article. But um, I'm not seeing it in the literature. And in fact, it's just the opposite when you look at the research of Dr. Steer from 1995. Well, I feel like I had some questions from listeners, but through our conversation, we've actually answered them. Okay, good. So that's that's great because it is, it was really, they were really focused around this preeclampsia, what to do if your ferritin's low or high and hemoglobin. So I think we're all good unless there's anything else you want to share. No, I'm good. I, I feel very relaxed about the, uh, the bases we've covered and appreciate the chance to have this conversation. Um, and I'm sure this is going to spark more questions in your, <laughs> in your followers and that's fine. And so we'll have a chance to have round three or round four. I, I'm very devoted to getting this message out to um, the community because more people need to know that there's more to the story. And I'm thrilled to be a part of this kind of dialogue and really commend you for your uh, willingness to challenge the status quo. It's really, it's really not an easy thing to do. No, it's not, but we're, we're getting it out there. And really it's just my devotion to having women birth healthily and how that then goes on to the baby. And I mean, if a baby is born with health and wellness, Mike, that's your life. That's your whole that's life right. of health. That's exactly right. No, it's beautiful. And it's and it can be done. And and I've got many uh followers in the RCP community that had challenged uh, early births and then they've as I said have RCP babies and it's a completely different experience. The body responds to the stimulus of the nutrients and they're just absolutely thrilled. There's people that were not able to get pregnant that had babies. And so it's just, you just don't know what's going to happen when the body gets the right um, bolus of nutrients. So people just need to know that there's more to the story and that um, mother nature does have us covered. We just didn't know that we weren't being given the full, the full um, explanation of what's going on. Do you have a practitioner training coming up anytime soon or is is it next year? Yeah, it's going to be next year. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so um, the root cause product or the RCP Institute, um, well, actually, we're going to open up the enrollment in just a couple of weeks, but the classes will start in February. So it's, I think it's February 9th, if I remember the date. It's the first, it might be the second Thursday uh, in February, but it's a, a Thursday afternoons, 3 to 5.30 
Eastern for 16 weeks. And um, it's just really fun to see. Um, we're going to this will be class number 19. So this this phone is working off of operating system 17. Well, we're, we're coming up on operating system number 19 uh, in the RCP, and we're very excited about getting folks out there. And, and the other thing that people need to know is that uh, we've got the RCP um, protocol, and uh, we've got a, um, several practitioner, several companies that are supporting that. But the one supplement that's new is the Recuperate, which is a copper-based supplement, and you can get that from Formula IQ or Activate FIQ. Um, for those who are really looking to um, reinforce the bioavailable copper in their protocol. So Great. I'll, um, do they have a website that I can link below in the notes? Mm-hmm. And... Absolutely. Great. I'll send well, yeah. That's awesome. And I know in our last podcast, I shared a lot about your book, but I'll include the links to your book, okay. to your Facebook Great. group, to your Instagram page, to the practitioner training. Yeah. And so if, people, that... if people need to reach out to see me it's or talk to me, it's, my email is my first and last name, Morley Robbins at Gmail. And this is what, when I give out my phone number, people, the podcasters always go, what? But it's 847-922-8061. People are very respectful and people that need to connect do. And, I'm, and I look forward to those conversations. So don't be bashful. Thank you, Marley. Thank you, you so, bet. so much. Okay. All right. I'm just going to hit stop record and it will take us.